0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, you know, speaking of revival, I, I, I heard of three pastors that, that planned kind of a community-wide revival of sorts. And so when, when it was done and they were finished, they all got together of kind of talked about the results. And so the first pastor said, well, you know what? This revival worked out great for us. At our church, we had four new families join our church. And the second pastor said, man, it worked even better for us. We had six new families join our church. And the third pastor just laughed and said, you know what, it was even better for us because we got rid of our 10 worst troublemakers. (laughs) Well, now, when we talk about revival, that's not exactly the kind of revival that we're talking about. Now, writers identify six waves of revival, that is six waves of spiritual awakening that have swept across our nation. Uh, The first wave of revival was called the First Great Awakening in the 1700s. And then there was the so-called Second Great Awakening that took place in the early 1800s. And then there was the Third Great Awakening that took place in 1857. Then after that, there was what was called the Urban Revival uh, that that took place in 1875. And many say that 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 was led by Dwight Moody. And then after that, there was a charismatic revival that broke out in 1906 called the, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. And then finally, the last great revival, the last great spiritual awakening that swept across our nation was in the 60s and 70s in the so-called Jesus movement. Of course, that was, that was put on the big screen uh, for all of us to see in the, in the, in the, in the recently released movie, The Jesus Revolution. Now, by the way, the the name Jesus Revolution came from from an issue of Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine in 1971 that chronicled this whole movement of millions of of teenagers and 20-somethings coming to Christ in this short window of time that swept across our country, the Jesus Revolution. And now, suddenly, uh, with, with the recent outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit and, and, and college campuses that are happening right now, uh, many are talking about what's going on at Asbury University. And many are starting to wonder, could we be in the midst of yet another revival? We might be. Maybe we are. Maybe we are not. But before us this morning in Mark chapter 2 are, are, are lessons and warnings for God's people to learn if we don't want to miss out on the new wine of revival. So now with that, we pick it up in verse 18. And by the way, in verse 18, what we're seeing here was the state, or if you would, the condition of of, of religion at the time of revival. It's no stretch of the imagination to say that that when Jesus came to the earth, that indeed was a revival. That, That was a spiritual awakening. And so in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, let's get some context. Now, uh, in, in the context of this chapter, there were some amazing things that have already happened in this chapter. In the first part of the chapter, we, we read about four guys who, who take their paralyzed friend, and they bring him to Jesus, and then Jesus heals them right on the spot. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And then after that, then Jesus goes out of his way to find the town outcast, uh, a, a, a tax collector by the name of Levi, and he says, come, follow me. And he does. And his life is, is transformed. His life has changed. In fact, not only has his life changed at that moment, even his name changes. And he's no longer known as Levi, the tax collector. He's now known as Matthew, the follower of Christ. His, his life was transformed. And, and so these amazing things were happening, and, and yet here's, here's this man who, who was, was the town outcast. Now, by the way, I call him the town outcast because Rome, typically what Rome would do was they would find a person within every village who knew everything about everyone, including how much money they actually made. And they would hire them uh, to basically be the town trader. to to collect taxes from everyone in their village, and then they were empowered by Rome to basically charge whatever fee they wanted to, to charge these excessive, huge fees and and line their own pockets with them. And so they were getting rich off of the backs of their own people, which is why uh, Levi, now called Matthew, would have been literally the most hated man in all of Galilee. And now he has become a follower of Christ. One writer, a Greek writer by the name of Lucian, said that, 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 that tax collectors were ranked right up there with adulterers and murderers. They were the most hated, the most despised of the day. And so in this context, we see in the midst of, of, of the paralyzed being healed, in the midst of, of, of an outcast becoming a follower, his life has been changed by Jesus. Now all of a sudden, Jesus is getting hit with a question about fasting. He's getting hit with a question about a religious ritual called fasting. As as these guys come on, they throw some shade, and they're like, you know what, how come your disciples don't fast like our disciples fast? Now, by the way, when it comes to fasting, it would help you to know that that the Jewish people were only required to fast one time a year. Just one time a year. It It was called the Day of Atonement, or as it's pronounced in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Just one time a year, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. There's only one time out of the whole year that Jewish people are required to fast. But but strict Jews like like the Pharisees, well, they also would have fasted every Monday and Thursday. So not only did they fast once a year on on, on the Day of Atonement, but then every Monday and every Thursday of every week they would also fast. and, and, and now you have to understand, when, when, when it comes to fasting, it wasn't as bad as it sounded. Uh, you know, we, we think fasting, they must have been starving themselves for 24 hours. It must have been miserable. Actually, they were only required to fast during daylight hours. And so during the daylight hours, they would fast. But then as soon as the sun went down, they gorged themselves. They would pig out. They would feast like there was no tomorrow. And when the Pharisees fasted, by the way, it's widely known that the Pharisees would, would, would put white makeup on their face to make them look pale, and then put dark makeup under their eyes to make them look sick. And so people would look at them and they'd say, oh, look how they're suffering for God. Look how they're fasting and they're suffering. Look how spiritual they are. But it was all for show. It was all an act. That's why on on another occasion, Jesus pointed at the Pharisees and he called them hypocrites. The Greek word hypocrites. It means one who puts on an act, one who puts on a face. So they're just putting on this face, the makeup and the whole thing, acting more spiritual than they really were. Now what's interesting is that in the context of this passage this morning. It seems that not only did the Pharisees fast this way, but evidently so did the disciples of John the Baptist. The passage seems to imply that both groups were fasting the same way, and now they're throwing shade at Jesus and his disciples for not fasting that way. In fact, it's interesting. In Matthew's version, it says that the disciples of John the Baptist were the ones who asked the question. But in Luke's version, it says the Pharisees asked the question. Mark just says the people asked this question. Meaning both groups fasted the same way and now they're turning to Jesus and saying, how come you don't put on the makeup? How come you don't put on a show? How come you don't fast like we fast? And so what this shows us is is that The religion of the day, that the religion of the Jewish people of that time had become stuffy and stale and cold and lifeless and judgmental. That they had come to a point where, frankly, they cared more about the fact that someone wasn't, quote-unquote, doing the ritual of fasting the right way They cared more about that than they did about the fact that the paralyzed and and the marginalized are are being transformed. Their lives are being changed as they come to Jesus. And by the way, those who track revivals, uh, they they make note that, that most revivals share common characteristics. Uh, and, and one of the things that almost every revival that's happened in America, almost every revival, one of the things that they have in common was the state of the church, the condition of the church at the time of the revival. Every, uh, but he commenting on this notes that, that the state of the church at the time of revival is that the church had become stale and cold and lifeless and judgmental, much like the Pharisees of Mark chapter 2. And on that note, we pick it up in verses 19 and 20, we're going to discover what we can learn, what a wedding can teach us about revival. What can we learn from a wedding about revival? Let's find out. Verse 19, it says, And Jesus said to them, 'Can Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now it's interesting. Uh, you know, a, a paralyzed man has been healed. Uh, uh, the the town outcast, this this tax collectors come to Christ. Their lives have been changed by Jesus, and all of a sudden, the religious people are uncomfortable with this. They hit Jesus with this with this judgmental question. You know, how come you don't fast like we fast? And it's interesting how Jesus responds. He, he responds with a word picture, with an analogy about a Jewish wedding. You have to understand that the Jewish weddings in in, in those days, it was a big deal. I mean, when a couple got married in that culture, it was a really, really big deal. Now, you know, typically when I perform ceremonies, I'll tell the couple, you know what, this is going to be the longest and the shortest half hour of your life. Be the longest and shortest half hour of your life. They never know what I mean by that. I, I told my son and his bride that on their wedding day. And they're like, now that we got married, we know what you mean. This was the longest and the shortest day of our life. But some of you have been to some ceremonies that are much longer than a half hour. But listen to this. Jewish weddings in the ancient days lasted for seven days. One whole week. Now that's a long ceremony. And because they lasted for seven days, the wedding guests would stay at the home of the, of the groom. They wouldn't get an Airbnb. They wouldn't get a Marriott. You would stay at the groom's house. That's where you would stay for seven days. So there was no excuse not to go to a wedding. It's not like you can say, well, you know, I, I couldn't get time off of work. You know, couldn't, get the, couldn't get the week off. It wasn't true. Listen, in that culture, it was required by law that if, 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 if somebody was getting married, the, the, then it was required that you gave them the week off, kind of like jury duty. If they were getting married, you gave your employee the week off so they could attend this wedding. So there's no excuse. Well, now the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, they might have tried to claim a, a religious exemption. They might have tried to say, hey, you know what? I I can't come to your ceremony because, you know what? I'm I'm fasting on Monday and Thursday. I'm so spiritual. I can't break my fast for for your wedding. And so I think what's happening here is, is is that the disciples of John the Baptist might have been challenged at this point. It's as if Jesus is challenging them, almost saying, you know what? Which group do you want to put yourself in? Do you want to be in the group with, 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 with these stale, stuffy, lifeless, judgmental religious leaders? Or do you want to join the celebration? Do you want to be in the wedding party? Which group do you want to put yourself into? It's interesting. On another occasion, we read that, that the disciples of John the Baptist hear that, that Jesus was baptizing people and they get offended by that. They get bothered by that. They start wondering, well, what if people leave John's ministry, and they start following Jesus's ministry? So they bring it to John the Baptist, and they're like, hey, John, have you heard about this Jesus guy? He's, he's baptizing people. But listen, baptism, that's like your thing, John. I mean, after all, you're called John the Baptist. He's, he's stepping into your territory. He's going to take your people, and I love John's answer. John the Baptist responds in John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, and he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John realized he wasn't the bridegroom. He was just the best man. But now it's interesting he, now, later, the, the disciples of, of John the Baptist are now hearing Jesus give almost the, the, the same kind of illustration, talking about the friends of the bridegroom, talking about the bridegroom himself, and they're, and they're probably scratching their head like, you know what, friends of the bridegroom and, and bridegroom, have we heard this someplace before? I mean, isn't this the same thing that, that John the Baptist told us? You know, you know, maybe they're thinking, you know what, maybe John the Baptist was telling us that we need to follow Jesus, and that's what they did. They, many of them leave John's ministry, and they become followers of Jesus. You see, this just shows us that John the Baptist understood his role. He understood that, that he wasn't the bridegroom, he was just the best man. He was just the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, he understood that, that this movement wasn't about John the Baptist, it wasn't the John the Baptist movement, it was the Jesus movement. You know, we talk about the Jesus movement. Listen, the Jesus movement started 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came here and went to the cross and died for our sins. That's the beginning of the Jesus movement. And so John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Reminding us to listen, as soon as we make a movement about a man, that's when the movement dies. In fact, Pastor Chuck uh, was, was worried about this. In his twilight years, he was warning many of us in Calvary Chapel this very thing. In fact, I, I went to a pastor's conference, a senior pastor's conference for Calvary Chapel pastors back in, in, in 2004. And during the conference, Chuck is, is giving this, this kind of a warning. In fact, he gives a warning about the four M's. Now, the four M's would have been man, movement, monument, and mausoleum. And he points out how church history shows that oftentimes when God does a new move, he raises up a man and the Holy Spirit comes upon that man and he uses that man and then it becomes a movement. But then when that man, when that leader of the movement dies, then the people who are in that movement, they try to keep the movement going by building a monument to the man. And Pastor Chuck warned that once that happens, once the man is raised up, and he becomes the focus of the movement, that's when the movement becomes a mausoleum. That's when the movement dies. And so Pastor Chuck understood that it wasn't the Chuck Smith movement, it was the Jesus movement. And in the same way, John the Baptist understood it wasn't the John the Baptist movement, it was the Jesus movement. And listen to this, Jesus is still moving. The movement started 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't stopped. He's still changing lives. The same Jesus that healed that paralyzed man. The same Jesus that changed Levi, the tax collector, has changed your life, and he's still changing lives today. He's still moving. Now, on that note, verse 21 deals with a bad patch-up job. Verse 21. Jesus says, no one sews a a new piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Of course, we get the picture. I mean, nobody takes a a brand new patch that's never been washed, never been shrunk, and then sews that to an old piece of clothing. I mean, if you do, I mean, yeah, at first it's going to look great. That is until you wash it and dry it, and once it's been washed and it's been dried, it shrinks and it keeps shrinking and it keeps shrinking and, and, it, and it pulls and, and eventually it makes the tear even worse than it was before. But in the same way, listen, that is how a lot of people are living their lives. A lot of people go through life and, and they sense it like there's this hole in their heart. There's something missing in their life and so they're trying to patch it up but they're patching it up with all the wrong stuff. So maybe they try drugs only to find that, that it takes more and more just to get the same feeling, just to get the same high that they once had. And they're finding that the hole is getting bigger. Or maybe they try relationships only to discover that they go from one failed relationship to another failed relationship. And, they, and they're still just as empty, maybe even emptier than they were before. Listen, what you're looking for is God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Or as Greg Glory paraphrases that, God has put a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person. That what you're missing, what you're looking for is God himself. Listen, as I look around this room, many of you, you've had that hole filled by asking Jesus to come into your life. The day that Jesus came into your life, the day that that he filled your life, he filled that void. He filled that hole. The the day you got saved, the day you became changed, the day you became a Christian, that void was filled. But Listen, some of us, we've been saved for so long, we've been Christians for so long, we have forgotten how empty we once were. We have forgotten how, how lost we once were. And so now, all these years later, after walking with Christ for all these years, now, when we see someone who's strung out, we see someone battling alcoholism, or we see somebody uh, struggling with, with gender dysphoria, or, or, or battling with this, or battling with that, it's easy all these years later for us to judge them, much like the Pharisees were back in Mark chapter 2. It's easy for us to, 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 to get critical and to judge. And it's not so easy for us to see them as someone who's hurting, to see them as someone who's empty, to see them as someone who's, who's actually looking for God and they don't even know that they're looking for God. They're just looking for God in all the wrong places. It's not so easy for us to, to look at them and see that they are just like we once were. We had just forgotten where we once were. And on that note, that's why we need new wine, verse 22. The new wine of revival, verse 22. Jesus says, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst and the skins, and the wine will be destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Of course, we get the picture. The picture is you get new wineskins, and because they're new, they're, they're fresh, they, they still have some elasticity. They can they still have some, some flexibility, some stretch, which is important because when you put new wine into them, which is basically grape juice, and then it starts to ferment, it gives off gases, and it starts to expand. And so you need room for expansion. So because those skins still have a flexibility, they can expand with it. But the problem is that when you take old wineskins that have been fully stretched, they have no, no, no more room for expansion. And not only that, but, but they're dry and they're old and they're brittle. And now you put new wine into them and now they give off gases and, 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 and there's no room for expansion. So what happens? They burst. Now what's interesting, however, is that this phrase new wineskins was actually a nickname that the Pharisees gave themselves. Listen, you have to be a special kind of stupid to give yourself a nickname. You know, nicknames are always better when you've earned them, when someone else gives it to you. But you know you're a special kind of person when you nickname yourself. And so the, the, the Pharisees nicknamed themselves. They called themselves at one time in history the New Wine Skins. Here's how it worked. Way back when the Jewish people were in captivity to, to the Empire of Babylon, this took place back in 586 B.C., during that time, uh, the, the Jewish people by and large had, had rejected God. They, they turned their backs on God. They turned away from God. And, and as a result, they had forgotten God's ways and they had forgotten God's word. But in that time, in the midst of that, a, a new group emerged on the scene known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they, they viewed the people who had rejected God, the people who had forgotten God and, and, and his word, they viewed them as the old wineskins, but they viewed themselves because, because they had a passion for God, had a passion for God's word. They had a passion to see revival break out in the hearts of the people. And so they viewed themselves as the new wineskins because they believed that a new work was about to come. Something new was about to happen, but now, years and years later, decades, in fact, even centuries later, now the Pharisees, who once were the new wineskins, had now become stale and hard and inflexible. They now had become the old wineskins. And so in this passage this morning, when it comes to revival, we learn three principles. Principle number one that we learn is that revivals are messy. Revivals are messy, even as those who who, who who were coming to Christ in that day they, 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 they were the crippled, they were the, they were the sick, they were the sinful, they were the outcast, those were the ones who were coming to Christ, and those are the ones that the religion of the day were being offended by. The very ones who were coming to Christ, the weak, the sick, the crippled, the the, the, the sinful, the outcast. The ones who were coming to Christ were the very ones who were offending the religion of the day. Reminds me of of Moody. Now, we we said that Moody was believed to be the one who who led uh, the revival in 1875 called the Urban Revival. In fact, Moody in his lifetime led more than a million people to faith in Christ. Now, early on, in, in his early days as a Christian, how he started was he just started bringing homeless teenage boys to church. In fact, he brought so many homeless teenage boys to church that he filled up the first two to three rows with, with homeless teenagers. Now, some of us, we hear that and we go, Man, that is amazing. That is awesome. But that's not what his church thought. In fact, many of the people in the church, they, they were offended by this. When they saw these homeless kids come in who, who were dirty and, and, and had drug addictions and alcohol addictions and filled with anger, and, and many of them involved in theft and, and, and violent crimes, I mean, people were bothered. People were offended. So much so that the elders of the church, they came to Moody and they said, listen, we want you to take one month off. Don't come to church for a whole month. Just use this month to pray about whether or not God wants you to keep your membership in this church. So Moody took the month off. A month later, he met with them and, and they asked him, they said, well, did you pray? And he said, yeah. And they said, okay, what did you feel like God told you to do? And Moody said, well, I prayed about it and here's what I felt like God said. I felt like God said, hey, Moody, don't worry about it. Because I've been trying to get into that church for 25 years myself and they still won't let me in. (laughs) You see, that's what happens. We get so set in our ways, get so comfortable. We become rigid and we become heartless to the point that we think we've we've got a lock on God and we don't even know that God isn't in our midst anymore. That we've locked him out. Now, if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, I think the movie did a great job uh, portraying kind of the old guard of Calvary Chapel at the time. And how many uh, at the beginning were, were uncomfortable with, with, the, with, with these quote-unquote dirty hippies coming into their church, these, these young people who were coming out of the drug culture and the sexual revolution, and they're now coming into their church, and a lot of people were offended by it. So much so that on one occasion, somebody turned to Pastor Chuck and they said, Chuck, listen, I mean, these these hippies are coming in and and they're dirty. And some of them aren't even wearing shoes. They're going to ruin our brand new carpet. Now, in real life, Chuck's answer is he turned and he said, well, then we'll rip out the carpet. Because he understood that that brand new carpet was not worth more than a lost soul. Listen, in the same way. If a revival is going to break out today, if a revival is going to break out in our midst, we have to remember it's going to get messy, especially in our day, in this culture. I mean, in our day where, where, where we have gender confusion and dysphoria, in our day where love is love, in, in our day of, of fentanyl overdose and methamphetamine overdose... In our day of this, and our day of that, you better believe that, that, if, that if a revival happens, the church is going to get messy. Just like it got messy in Mark chapter 2, as, as the outcast, and as the paralyzed, as the rejected were now the ones coming to Christ. And it offended the religion of the day. That's principle number one. Principle number two is that old wineskins cannot be used for new work. I mean, it says at the end of verse 22, new wine is for fresh wineskins. So when we get calloused, when we get uh, unsensitive to to the lost, when we get to the point where we're like basically the the get off my lawn guy yelling at the culture, we see how the culture's gone this left and and gone this liberal and gone this way, and all we do is yell at it, we might be an old wineskin that can't be used. New work is for fresh wineskins. And then principle number three is that when, when you search the scriptures, biblical revival, revivals that have happened in the Bible always were sparked by the word of God. Listen to this. The spirit of God uses the word of God to revive hearts of the people back to God. Listen to that again. The spirit of God uses the word of God to revive the hearts of people for God. And so, when you search the scriptures, you find that one of the marks of revival throughout the scriptures is 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 a passion for God's word that ends up leading to repentance. You know, for example, you might you might look at what we might might call the revival of Asa, in in in, in Second Chronicles chapter 15. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, if you want to call that a revival, it was, it, was, it was sparked, it was driven by the preaching of the word of God by the prophet Azariah, and as a result, King Asa is now inspired to lead his nation, uh, to, to repent of their sins, to, to, re, to, 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 to repent of, of idol worship and to turn back to God. You might look at the so-called revival of Nineveh that was sparked because of the preaching of a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah. But because he preached and and the Ninevites heard the word of God, they heard that God's judgment was coming, the whole city repented. More than 100,000 repented and turned to God. And in the same way, Patrick Morley, in a recent article titled A Brief History of Spiritual Revivals and Awakenings in America, points out an observation that that although every revival was unique and they all kind of had their own flavor, nevertheless, every revival that's happened in American history that swept across our nation, they have some certain things in common. And among some of the things that they have in common, number one was there was a heavy emphasis on the preaching of the Word of God. You might think of Jonathan Edwards during the, the so-called Great Awakening. You might think of Dwight Moody that we talked about during the, the Urban Revival. And then our very own Pastor Chuck Smith as he taught verse by verse in the 60s and 70s during the so-called Jesus Revolution. A heavy emphasis on the word of God, which then sparked repentance. People turning from sin, people turning from their lifestyles, people turning to Jesus. But then number two, that, the, the, the second thing that, that, that they've observed is that, is that revivals, as we said before, are messy. And listen, they're messy because we're, we're talking about people who are living in sinful lifestyles. And now they're turning from those sinful lifestyles and they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're turning to Jesus and they're coming to your church. But they're coming to your church with baggage. They're coming to your church with, with stuff. Things get messy. And then the third observation that they've made about revivals throughout American history is that almost every revival noticed the same thing when it came to the church. The condition of the church, the state of the church was lifeless, stale, rigid, judgmental. Just like the Pharisees of Mark chapter 2. So now, you know, we, we, we might be wondering, are, are we in the midst right now of a new revival? We hear about some of these things that are happening in college campuses. I talked about earlier uh, uh, what's now being called the Ashbury Revival. I'll show you pictures. This is taking place or took place on, on, a, on a Christian campus called Ashbury in Kentucky. And when it happened it, it, it started uh, on, on February 8th during a chapel service, and they have a handful of chaplains that all kind of share the, the teaching load, and so they decided that they were going to, 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 verse by verse, teach through the book of Romans. So on that particular day, February 8th, the chaplain that day was Reverend Zach Me- Meerkrebs. Now my wife and I, Amy and I, we, we, we got on YouTube and watched the whole sermon as he was going verse by verse through Romans chapter 12. And then at the end, you know, he, he, in fact, Meerkrebs called his, his own sermon unmemorable. <laughs> as he just taught through Romans chapter 12 about being love in action, then at the end of the, at the, end of the message, he just, he just gave a time and said, listen, whoever wants to stick around for some prayer, you're welcome to. And all of a sudden, 20 came forward, and then 30, and then 100, and then hundreds, and then thousands came, and they never left. They just kept coming and coming and coming. And this lasted for not a week, not not, not two weeks, almost three weeks, people just praying and worshiping and confessing their sins and repenting from their sins. And it all started with a verse-by-verse study of Romans chapter 12. But then it spread. It spread from, from, from there to, to, to Texas A&M in and Corp, and Corpus Christi. As you, you see, thousands here just gathering and worshiping and, and, and praying and, and, and repenting of their sins. And from there on February 15th, it spread to Samford University in Kentucky. As again, we see hundreds gathering and just, and just for hours and hours just worshiping and repenting and, and turning to the Lord. And then from there, it spread to Baylor University in Waco, Texas. As again, thousands upon thousands are gathering. And then from there, it then spread to Cedarville University in Ohio. But it wasn't just college campuses. Uh, here's a picture of, of hundreds of students accepting Jesus at, at, at Federal Way uh, High School in Washington. Now I don't have a picture for this, but on February 10th, there were also hundreds upon hundreds of students who had accepted Christ at Huntington High School, a public high school in Hun- Huntington, West Virginia. In fact, uh, the next day over 200 of them showed up at, at, a, at a nearby church called Christ Temple Church asking if they can get baptized. Hundreds of them got saved at this revival at their high school and then over 200 of them went, it, it took it on themselves just to go get baptized someplace. And so many see this and we're wondering, is this the start? Could this potentially be another revival? It might be. Now, we're in March. This took place in February, and it's starting to kind of fizzle out a little bit. But here's the thing. If there's there's going to be another revival in our midst, in our lifetime, I think we need to learn from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who once were new wineskins, but then they became stale. They became lifeless. They became old wineskins, The lesson of the Pharisees is that oftentimes the new wineskins of of past revivals are the very ones who become the old wineskins of the next revival. Let me say that again. Oftentimes the the new wineskins of the past revivals are the very ones who become the old wineskins of the next revival. And I think for us, particularly a part of the Calvary Chapel movement, that was birthed out of the so-called Jesus movement, we need to take heed of that warning. Because we once were the new wineskins. We were the ones that were birthed out of this whole thing in the 60s and 70s. We might need to take heed of this warning that if it happened to the Pharisees, it could happen to us. And so listen, if we're going to see another revival... In, in, in our midst, in, in, in our day, in our lifetime, it might mean that we might need a, a, a revival in our own hearts first. You know, there's some of us in this room that might need to have our, our heart for the lost revived. There's some of us in this room that might need to have our, our, our passion for, 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 for the hurt revived. We might need our compassion for the marginalized revived, Gypsy Smith, who, who was an evangelist during the so-called Third Great Awakening, he said this. He said, if you want revival, then go into your room, draw a circle on the floor, sit in the middle of the circle, and then pray and ask God to revive everything inside that circle. It starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with us. Because Jesus said at the end of verse 22, new wine is for fresh wineskins if he's going to use us, we might need to be refreshed. Before he revives them, he might need to revive us. Amen? So Father, Father, we pray for, for your revival. Lord, that your spirit would speak through your word and revive the hearts of your people. Lord, yes, this culture needs to be revived, Our politicians need to be revived. The the students in our schools need to be revived. The, The homeless need to be revived. Every aspect of our society needs to be revived. But Lord, more importantly, your people need to be revived because we might be getting stale. We might be getting lifeless. We might have become cold and judgmental. And if we're judging the lost, then we can't be used to reach the lost. So Lord, we pray that you would revive us. Give us your heart for these people, so we might see you move once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand and sing one more time to the Lord? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.